0: So welcome back to part two of the program this morning. My name is Shane Ambrose. Delighted that you're here with myself and John for our program on what is, as of course, a special day today, of course, because it is the Feast of the Assumption. So we are delighted to have with us this morning um, Imelda Wickham. Good morning, Imelda. How are things? Good morning,
1: Shane. I'm very well. Thank you. And you?
0: I'm not doing too bad now at all. We're delighted to have you on, uh, have you on the podcast this week. Because you are, just after publishing, uh, with Messenger Publications, a very interesting book called Unheard Voices, Reflections of a Prison Chaplain. So um, you have spent, was it how long were you working in the prison system? About 20 years. Wow, that's quite a period of time. But before we... (laughs) <laughs> You'd have been out sooner if you killed someone <laughs> So, um, but before we dive into into the book itself, Imelda I suppose maybe if you could share a small bit about yourself With our listeners this morning In terms of maybe your own story, where you're from So, uh, your own vocation story as well Because you're a member of the presentation congregation
1: mm-hmm. um, Well, I'm from Wexford I was born and reared in a small little village called Bree. Uh, outside Anaskorthy and I went to the local primary school there and then when it came to secondary school I cycled six miles into Anaskorthy uh, for a number of years for secondary education and uh, at the end of that time um, I think all for forever I always kind of felt that I would uh, join a religious congregation that was something I always had in mind. Yeah. And uh, not being too sure where to go or how to go about it, I decided the easiest thing was to join the people that I knew. So I joined the presentations in Wexford and um, was did my novitiate there and then moved around to different places around the country. And um, I taught in primary and secondary school for a number of years. And uh, but during all that time, uh, I always felt called to work in a prison and um Obviously, when the religious congregation, you're asked to do this and do that and go here and go there. And I did all that for a long time. And eventually, after a number of years, I said, now is it's now or never. And I remember going to the provincial and said, look, I've had this dream for a long, long time. Uh, would you ever free me up to just let me go and do it? And they did. And uh, so having um, got the permission, I went to Chicago and I studied um, um, social justice there and a bit around... Um, drug addiction and these kind of things and then i moved up to toronto and i did the cynical and pastoral education course in a women's prison in toronto and um flew back to dublin applied for a job in the irish prison service was successful and i started in wheatfield prison on the 1st of september 1999 so that's my life story in a short <laughs> one. Short that's, sentence that's, maybe. that's 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 that's
0: running, that's running through it very, very, very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> so, you 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 worked you ministered in Wheatfield Prison in Dublin, yes. Okay.
1: And for three years, pardon, for three years. During that 20 years, I was also national coordinator of prison chaplaincy within the Irish Prison Service. So I'd have had access to other prisons in in the country as well. So that was a big experience for me, a good experience, because it gave me an insight into all the prisons in the country the open prisons, the the closed prisons, the high security. So those three years were, were, were years of great experience. And uh, then my years in 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 Wheatfield, I suppose, grounded me very much because I was there day in, day out with the prisoners. And it gave me a wonderful insight into lives of people in prison and also into their families. Mm. And uh, I suppose the families always had a, a special place in my heart. And I think maybe later on I might talk a bit about the families of people in prison and uh, just to talk a bit about that, because... Um, you know, I often say they're the people who maintain sanity in the prison because they keep in touch with the people there, and they're very, very significant in the life of the of the prisoner, and also I think in the life of the state by the, mm. the great service they provide by visiting their their loved ones in the prison.
0: Mm. And looking back over looking back over twenty years of of ministry in 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 prison system, uh, Imelda, for you, what would be kind of the Kind of the key things that you would take from that experience, in terms of the learnings or the moments of grace that you would have had while ministering to people in prison.
1: I suppose what I would take with me was, you know, since I came out of the prison, I've had time to to reflect on it, and mm. particularly during the first lockdown, you know, during that COVID when we all had to cocoon, and I was one of them. And I suppose reflecting back, what really struck me was the great resilience that the people have who are committed to prison. And the sheer humanity, like, I suppose you're humanity as Ross there when you've been there every day, you're meeting people who've lost everything, they've lost their freedom, maybe lost their good name, many have lost their families, they've lost contact with their children, with their spouses or whatever. So it's a very, very difficult time for people. And yet within that situation, I found great life. I found great faith at times. I found people with tremendous hope, people who never gave up, people who coped with all sorts of issues, with death of their loved ones that they couldn't even attend their funerals, people who suffered from addictions, people who suffered from mental health. And somehow within that experience, there was a sense of community among us in that prison. And as chaplain, we were also chaplain to the prison staff. So in actual fact, as chaplain, you were chaplain to the whole prison community from the governor down, and um, maybe I should say from the Governor up, but whatever you want to look at it. But, um, so you were with these people day in, day out. And for me, there was something special about it. And I suppose I asked this morning to, to play that um, song, The Bright Blue Rose. And I asked for that because we used to often sing it at Mass on Sunday morning. And the liturgy within the prison, there's something very special about that too. It's about people coming as they are. There's no makeup, there's no pretense. I'm not coming because I have to come. I'm coming because I want to be here. But I'm coming with my own vulnerability, my own nakedness. I want to be here. And we were there as a community, staff, people in prison, all of that. So these were the things. And I suppose the other thing is a moment of grace, I spoke about the families. And I suppose I've often taught, we talk about the unconditional love of God. And you can't preach a family about that. There's no way you can do it because people have to experience it. And I would say that I experienced that within the prison walls. Mm. And it was the unconditional love of the families who kept coming week in, week out, very often for years at a time and never gave up. And I suppose I also thought then of the people in prison who never get a visit, who have nobody. And the sadness of that. And yet within these people still had to live life within that situation. And to look at how they're in other parents or whatever you want to call them, colleagues in the prison, how they support them through that and how the staff supported them. So all of these things really, when you talk about moments of grace, there were many, many moments of grace. And John, you asked for a prayer yeah, to the Holy Spirit um, before we started. As I used to go into the prison in the morning, I used to often call on the Spirit to say, would you ever guide me where I'm supposed to go today? Because it was a big prison, there were 500 people there. Will I go left or will I go right? Where will I go? And that's all you could do, really, you know. And you also got in touch with your own vulnerability because I think with meeting people there, we, off, we walk the road together and I think they helped me as much as I helped them.
0: Mm. Two words that struck me there, Imelda, when you when you were talking about it was f- places of faith and places with hope, finding, finding faith and finding hope. Um, two words, I suppose, for many people that you wouldn't necessarily... Associate with a prison environment,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, so I suppose looking at the faith side of it first, like um, kind of, you know, I suppose, I suppose, explain to people on the outside the prison walls, like you know, if a, if a person is so participating with liturgy or talking to the chaplain, they do that voluntarily; they don't have to do it. It's not part of the of the of the regimen in in mm-hmm. the prison system. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, you see,
1: again, when you say what's faith people don't say to me you go around talking about god we didn't Was in that conversation very often you know in telling their own story and they'd often talk about their grannies they would often mm. talk about their mothers and i think that's where they got the faith and maybe they might be practicing it but they might think to themselves they had lost it but deep down it was there and i suppose when we talk about hope what's hope And in a sense, I would have been with people who maybe felt everything was hopeless. There was no hope. And, um, you know, I think Pope Francis said recently, when he was talking about prisoners, he was saying, you know, we have no right to deprive people of hope, that people who come into prison need to be given that hope, that there is hope, and that there is hope at the end of of, of this life for them. But to meet people who kept that hope alive, in spite of what they were going through, and in spite of everything, and people who... You know, very often as a chaplain, you'd have to go and, and um, tell people maybe their mother had died or their father or someone dear to them. And again, how they would respond to that and how they would want to pray for it and maybe begin to pray with you at a time like that. So there is, you know, I often think of the thing, I have not found such great faith in Israel. Um, that's in the gospels <laughs> where I can't say where, but I could mm-hmm. say at times I have not found such great faith except in the prison. That's when I found
0: mm. some great faith. Um, And uh, I suppose I so sometimes when we talk about people in prison, you know, there's that the whole dynamic is around the, the, the penal system, the legal system and 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 the person ending up in, 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 in prison. but often of course there's a lot of public disdain, public maybe anger, depending on what the crime is which can be loaded onto a person in prison's shoulders. But often what strikes me is what's forgotten is they are someone's son or daughter or someone's brother or sister or someone's partner or husband or wife, whatever the case might be. So yes. sometimes the families sometimes um, get missed in the whole dynamic.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things we would do every morning, you'd go around to the, to the cells where the people would come in the night, the committers had come in the night before, and they maybe have come from another prison or they were commissioned from the courts. But um, as I sat in front of that person, I always said, this man could be my brother, my father, my uncle, um, my nephew, whoever it is. And I suppose I also said to myself, no matter what they had done, I always said, I could have done the same thing. Uh, I would have been capable of doing the same thing, you know, given mm. um, different circumstances. And um, so like when you talk about this system, I suppose one of the reasons I've written the book is I have grave difficulties in in, in, in for a time. I used to ask myself, why am I working within this system? And am I contributing to this system? Do I want to be in it? But I stayed because I felt that being within that system, maybe uh, in reflecting on it or calling other people to reflect on it with me, it could bring about some change. But the, the criminal justice system is in serious need of overhauling, serious need of reshaping, being brought into line with 21st century psychology and all the knowledge we have around human behaviour, and um, it's a system that I think looks more towards punishment rather than towards rehabilitation. Um, like the words I use instead of punishment would be um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, healing, restoration of right relationships, the whole thing of restorative justice—that kind of thing that I think we need to start looking at, and a whole way of looking at how do we how do we deal with the people. Who are involved in crime?
0: How can we help? Yeah. So I suppose, matter what I would say to you there first, okay. If we, if we, if we, if we, if we unpack that a small bit for, for yeah. our listeners, okay. So the first thing there is you use the term restorative justice or a healing as well. So I suppose for many people, the concept of for with that you know where they don't have daily interaction with with the, with the prison with prisons or with people in prisons is that I suppose prison is seen very much. Uh, you know, like the Victorian concept, punishment. It's something, that a person has done something, they have infringed on a law and they have been found, you know, through a, the legal process have been found that they have done that. So I suppose for, for some people, I suppose they would say to you, well, that's what, that's what prison, that's what I understand prison to be. So when you talk about restorative, the restorative process, restorative justice, could you maybe expand on that, maybe explain what does that mean to people who might not have heard the
1: term before? Okay. Can I just maybe add as a little addendum that um, I always say like chaplaincy is around building relationships with people. Mm. And people who are sent to prison, they're deprived of that opportunity to have a relationship with anyone, any kind of meaningful relationship. So when I talk about restorative justice, and again, that's, that's only one way, like I've asked for a conversation where all people are involved in this conversation. I think anyone who reads the book, particularly the last chapter, will pick up that what I'm calling for is a national conversation around how we deal with perpetrators of crime. And there are lots of very, very strong views. And I my view is only one, and I think we need to hear all views. But when I come back to the restorative justice around giving issuing an invitation, it has to be by invitation, to the victims of crime and to the perpetrators of crime to come together in a, in, a, in a controlled situation where they can be facilitated in explaining to each other what happened and what, what happened to them. Like for the victim to be able to say, this is what you did to me. This is how it has affected me. This is how it has affected my family. This is how it's affected my whole life. I'm damaged forever around this. And for maybe the perpetrator to say, well, look, at, it wasn't you personally. I don't know what he's going to say really, because everyone will be different. But for mm-hmm. that person to be able to say, maybe give some indication what was going on in him or her that they committed this crime, or that they did whatever they did.
0: So mm. it's
1: around that, but it's by invitation only, and I think it's, it's, it's done in a facilitated way that would help. But it's around restoring the right relationships, because again, when a crime is committed, it's, it's around breaking relationships, there's a, rela- a, a breakdown in relationships, and how do I restore that? And I think it's not just between the perpetrator and, and the victim, it's also about society. I think society has a lot of, of responsibility with prisons. And many, many people, I mean, how many people do you know have any contact with prisons? I probably know a lot of them because I worked in a prison. But my own family would have no contact with them. And they'd just say, what? I don't know what you're talking about. It's nothing to do with me. But I think society has a grave obligation to look at what causes people to come to prison. And if society really put their hands in the heart, they said the only, the only way we are going to deter people from going to prison is to create a more equal and just society, mm-hmm. and we all have a responsibility about that. You know, and we can argue forever about punishment, about retribution, about reparation, about atonement, whatever it is. And all these are words, and very significant words, and very real words. But I think we've all got to sit down, and I've got to listen to victims, I've got to listen to perpetrators, I've got to listen to their families, I've got to listen to society, I've got to listen to the people who who say lock them up and throw away the key. I think we've got to listen and we listen with the heart as well as the head and then say, well, what is the most, what's the most positive thing we can do here? What kind of a society do we want to create? But if we keep locking up the perpetrators of crime and letting them out and if you look at prison today and the high rate of recidivism, (coughs) the same people are coming back into prison over and over again and I keep saying if I went to hospital in the morning and I got out and I went back next week and I came out and I got, people say, what's going on? What are they doing? But nobody ever asks what is happening in our prison system that the same people are going back in? And it's not the fault of the prison system. It's the fault of the it's the it's fault of society. Society has to look at how do we create an equal and just society, and then how do we deal with the perpetrators of crime in a healing, restorative way? Mm. Now, And, you know, I, I think I said in the book someplace where it, the cost of keeping someone in prison for a year, I think it's around 70 grand or 80, I'm no good on figures, but around that. And if that money could be employed someplace else, to help
0: people stay out of prison rather than putting them in, mm. uh, I, I and that's was- that's that was that was a point I was I was going to draw down with you as well. Like there was there was a report I I don't know recently was it from the Irish Penal Trust or someone like that where they were discussing the rates of recidivism. That's you okay. know where people will commit crime again and in, end up yes. going back into prison. And yes. the percentages, the the repeat was absolutely it was astronomical. Absolutely. But but mm-hmm. and like you said though, there's a linkage. There's a linkage there in terms of. Um, uh, I suppose as you said societal justice is part of it as well Hmm. but then I suppose some people would turn around to you Melden, and they would say well okay but is that is that taking away their agency you know that's saying that you know their their circumstances are 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 responsible for what's happened to them What, what about their own abilities and 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 things like that and i suppose where i'm going with that as well is it's linking into something that you you, you've discussed in the book which is the issue of the treatments of addictions that needs to be provided to Mm -hmm. to people in prison Mm -hmm. because i think it's fair to say from there are a lot of people who are in prison because they have addiction issues yeah
1: that's correct And, and and i've argued for years that we should be establishing treatment um drug um, addiction treatment centres because there are many different types of, of, of addictions and we should be looking towards addiction treatment centres. And I've also spoken there about mental health people with, with mental health problems. And I suppose to go back again to, you know, this question of free will. Um because <laughs> I have thought about that a lot. The whole thing of I mean as I walked around the prison and I'd meet people and they'd tell me, you know, they were guilty, they'd say, yeah, look, I did do it blah, 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 and we're gone, and they, 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 they have no problem saying, yes, I did it, I'm responsible, and, um, and yet, when I would reflect on what they would tell me as well as that, um, so very often I said to myself, are they really guilty, who is the guilty one here, and over the years, I remember many, many mothers coming to me, you know, whose young sons had come to prison. And they would tell me how, you know, Johnny or whatever was no problem grandchild. And at a certain stage of his life, you know, he began to get into trouble, he began to show different um, attitudes to things and she felt, you know, there's something happening here and she would have gone for help. It was never a help, never a help. He was always in the, in the waiting list, she couldn't get the help she needed, she couldn't get the services, there was always a waiting list. And then he was in trouble and he ended up in prison. And of course, there's never a waiting list in the prison. People just, there's always room in a prison. Mm. and. I've often reflected on that and said, like, had these people been given the help in the very beginning, that would never have happened to them. And when you look today, how are we treating our families today? All the homeless families, you look at the homeless children um, that are on our streets, that are in sleeping in garden barracks at night time, that are sleep, sleeping in family hubs. So really, it, I think it comes back, a lot of it comes back to this. Of course, there's free will, and of course, there's innocence and guilt. But there is there, there, this little phrase, and I, I haven't got it now, but... There are things that diminish my guilt, um, and maybe sometimes people don't reflect. That's why when I talk about the unheard voices, I want the voice of the prisoner to be heard. Because if you look at the criminal justice system, if I commit a crime in the morning, the state will take over, and I won't get a chance to speak for myself, and my voice will never be heard. You know, we have the legal the issue, the legal um, people. Then you come into prison, so there is a point where we have to stop and listen to the people who've committed the crime as well and try to get to the bottom of why did they do it? Because I, I say in the book over again, over and over again, I've never met an evil person. I've met people who've done evil deeds, but I know that deep within me, I'm as capable as they are of doing things. So it's about trying to understand human behavior, human nature, and trying to get some, other way of dealing with it. Because I think if, if if I commit a crime and they're going to lock me up for whatever number of years, it's not going to do anything for me because they're depriving me of the means that I need to become a different person. Mm. And that's, you know, and we can't blame the prison system. I, I I would say that we need maybe very, very small prisons here and there, but not the numbers. We're incarcerating far too many people. And most of these people don't need to be in prisons. And I think there need to be other alternatives. And like I think if we sit down and talk about it, these alternatives will emerge. We look at other, at other new and creative ways of dealing with it. Otherwise, we're going to keep going ahead. And as you say, the recidivism will just get, you know, the percentages will get higher and higher and we'll achieve nothing. So I think it's time we stopped... Talk to each other, talk to the families, talk to the victims, talk to the prep, talk, you know, and just listen and see what is the way forward. We're a small country, and I think we're capable of doing it. And, you know, we say, well, we don't have the money. Of course, we have the money. We have money for everything. So we have money for this. And surely we have money to, 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 to uh, um, help people who are mentally ill. They should be in hospitals. So if we have money to put people in prisons, we have money for, for treatment centres. So it's about really a, a reframing our thinking coming up with a new mindset it's all about a mindset really and um i mean i hear uh, a lot of people would challenge me on what i'm saying and say you know i'm stopped on crime i'm not i believe that we have to be accountable i believe that we need law and that we need justice and um but i'm looking for true justice i'm looking Mm -hmm. for true justice um a justice that will heal and restore and a justice that will make life better for society and um I also feel that um, when I looked at, uh, you know, the people in prison, and there are many people out in society, you know, who maybe have done wrong as well, but were able to, you know. Um, so it, it, it's, it's a new way of thinking, but I think the time has come to stop doing the same thing that's not working over and over again and just say, look, let's come together, let's talk, let's listen, and let's come up with new and creative ways.
0: Thanks, Amelda, for that. So as you said, you're... If you like, your invitation to this national conversation, which needs to be had, is your book, which is "Unheard Voices: Reflections of a Prison Chaplain" by Imelda Wickham. Just uh, sorry, I'm not sure if I said your full name at the start of the interview. <laughs> and it has a foreword by Peter McFerry, the, the Jesuit. It's published in Ireland and the UK by Messenger Publications, and it can, it's priced around uh, twelve euros, twelve ninety-five. But Imelda, <clears throat> as well as as well as the book and the invitation, <clears throat> excuse me. To, to to this conversation that you that you that you're, that you're in, issuing, you're also uh, you 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 finished up at the prison, so you're you're now moving in a new direction. Some would say, you know, after so many years, maybe time to settle back and kind of take <laughs> things easy. But then again, I've never I've never yet a religious priest or sister who sits back and retires. You are setting up um, a, a new support service families of people in prisons do you want to tell us a small bit about
1: that yeah i'd love to tell you a bit about that actually because i'm sure many people listening maybe have people uh, belonging to them in prison um as chaplain i would have had a lot of contact with the families over the years um mainly by phone and there's, there was never enough time to meet them because i was you know constantly in the prison but when i would meet them and i suppose the one thing that was always coming across was it was very support for them you know somebody came to prison in the morning they were left out there a picture for people who have never had any contact with uh, prison before, or for people maybe whose son or someone belonged to had committed a very serious crime, and there was absolutely nothing there for them. So I always said if I ever got a chance, um, I would do something. And actually, I was still in the prison when, remember, in 2018 it was the year of family, mm-hmm. and we are all talking about families. And I said now <clears> was the time because you know people are really interested in families now. And I said now was the time. So um, I decided it was time maybe to leave the prison. And uh, so we set up an organisation, we called it New Directions, support for families of people in prison. And um, the idea was to give people an opportunity, like when someone predominantly goes to prison, um, it's a very, very difficult time. There's a whole stigma, there's a whole um, breakup of family relationships. Uh, there's a whole thing of how do I cope with this? What happens? They're worried about the person in the prison, they're trying to cope with life on the outside. And they've no place to go, even for practical information, they've no place to go. And very often, as well as the practical information, they're looking for maybe emotional support or a listening ear. And that's what New Directions is about. Um, I have three people working with me, and i they got trained therapists. We're not saying that people who come to us need therapy. They don't. But they do need a listening ear or that emotional support. So that's what we're providing for them. And uh, we we set up a house in Dublin, and... um, we started in Dublin, that's where I was living, and I suppose most of the prisons were there. But then, and with the COVID, when COVID came, uh, people have been coming to us. The idea was they'd come, have a cup of tea, sit down, have a chat, tell their story. Um, because I had worked in the prison for so long, I, you know, I understood what they were talking about. And they didn't need to explain to me what it was like for them. So that was happening. And then with the advent of COVID, obviously people come and come. So we had to sit back and say, what are we going to do now? So we began to work on Zoom and on video and on telephone. And you know what? It has worked marvellously well. I said, really, you know, I thank COVID for that because we do believe we've had people contacting us from America, from England and from Donegal to Kerry and people wouldn't have been able to come to Dublin, come to Dublin because they wouldn't have the I mean, the cost of it and the time involved. So now people can pick up the phone. And what usually happens is somebody who has somebody in London prison they give me a call or they'll send me an email and I ring them back or they ring me and we we'll have a chat and I just see what are their needs, we talk about it. I invite them to come to the house if they want to, but they don't ever have to come because we can now do it as we're doing it here this evening on video, on Zoom. And really it's a wonderful way of doing things. Um, it opens up it opened up our whole service to the whole country and also like that we have prisons in Cork, Limerick, Castellery all over so all these people can come to us and um, it's a free confidential service and I think that's the important thing Um, people can come to us in confidence they can talk to us about whatever whatever their needs are and we cannot like I suppose all we can do is offer them a listening ear but very often in talking things out they come to their own resolution they 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 find themselves and a, a lot of people come to us as well and say look at how do I tell my children that their father's in prison How do I communicate with my kids? How do I communicate with my teenagers? These kind of issues. People have financial difficulties. Um, Elderly parents, their son, maybe who is looking after them has gone to prison. So there are so many issues surrounding. And and I suppose I have met those families coming to the prison and now I'm meeting them outside the prison. So it's the same issues. And um, I would like just to extend an invitation to any family out there who have that, just to give us a ring, send us an email,
0: uh, and uh, we're there at the other end of a phone or on email. So that's um, just so, so for people for listeners this morning that were just looking that might be want to get in touch. So the website is um, familiesofprisoners.ie, and the yes. telephone number and the email address are on it. So the telephone number is a it's a mobile number oh eight seven six zero nine seven six eight six. And then the email address is familynewd, so d is in direction, so familynewd, all one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. And we will put the links to that into the podcast information so that people can uh, access it as well for listeners that want to to get that. Um, so Amanda, we're delighted to have you on the podcast this morning and to share your story with us and the invitation uh, that you know the call that is there i suppose for that uh, after 20 years of experience in in the, in the prison system so like we said her book that's available from messenger publications is unheard voices reflections of a prison chaplain written by Imelda wickham with a foreword by peter mcferry and uh, available from messenger publications so to conclude this part of the podcast this morning uh, Imelda, you had asked us to play a particular piece of music can you just tell us what it is and Maybe just why you picked
1: it. I would like you to to play the bright blue rose, and um, the reason I want that is, um, I suppose it's it's a memory I have from our Sunday morning liturgies uh, in Wakefield Prison, and it was a song we very very often sang, and you would hear a pin drop while we'd be singing that. Very often the prisoners themselves would sing it, or sometimes we might have a visiting um, um, whatever you want a singer in with us, and it was always very very popular, and it's something that I love. And uh, there's a lovely line in it for those. What was it now again? Um, for those, for all who seek to understand. And I think life is all about trying to understand, understand myself, understand each other, understand why we do what we do, whatever. So I just love that line.
0: Perfect. Thank you. Thank you, much. very much. You, so, uh, so John, to play us out.
1: Right. So we'll go
2: with the bright blue rose, and this time it's sung by Mary Black. So I'm back and join us. Um, in the next part of our program where we read and reflect on the Sunday Gospel, The Word of God. I skimmed across black water with it Once submerging on to the banks of an urban morning That hungers the first light much, much more than the mountains ever do She, like a ghost beside me Goes down with ease of dolphin. It's always been, and so it goes to one. And it is a precious time And it is the only way Forget-me-nots among us, Lord It's always been, and so it goes To ponder his death and his life eternal